Hi, I'm Michael Scott. We're here at the Harvard iLab tonight to talk about getting behind the perfect pitch. This session is designed to do three things. First, it's a framework for you to understand how to put together a great pitch to a VC. And second, within that framework, it covers a number of the elements that you might consider key to putting your business plan together. So that's everything from your value prop to your business model to your go-to-market. And third, and perhaps most importantly, giving this as a VC, I'm trying to share with you the insights on what we're looking for that's really behind that pitch. Because in the end, it's all about you and what you're bringing to this pitch and this business proposition that really counts. So with that, we hope you have a great evening. Uh, for those of you who didn't get a chance to meet me outside, the most important thing about this session to me is to make it worthwhile to you. And so I hope to get to meet you. I hope to get to understand what you're looking to get out of the program and to understand in particular what I can learn from you in terms of the challenges you have as an entrepreneur getting a business started. So with that said, this is going to prove to be a, a framework for the series as a whole because a lot of the things I'm going to cover in putting together the perfect pitch are actually going to be things that we'll go into in depth in the workshops around what it takes to build a business. And so this agenda, to, to a large extent, is about um, giving you a chance to engage in a conversation with me about what are the things you're looking to do in, in starting your company, what are the things that you need in the way of help. And we've created a website for you uh, which has all this content on. So you can skip straight into the content if you want to by going to mjscock.com. All the slides are up there. They are being improved and modified all the time because I'm giving this, these uh, presentations a lot. Um, but you can at least engage right there and give me questions and feedback on the site, and obviously I'll follow that up. In terms of what we'll cover specifically uh, today, the agenda for the workshop is to give you a checklist for putting a pitch together. So that's the easy part, in my opinion. You know, Putting the framework of if you filled out this template, you're going to cover all the right bases. But the more important thing we're going to do is we're going to pick out a couple of areas that are, I think, one of the, the um, um, important, are some of the important areas that people get stuck on in their pitch. So for example, we often see people spend too long demonstrating their technology and not enough time explaining how it's actually going to get to market. Then I would say the most important thing for today is to try to get behind the pitch and actually understand what is it that a VC is looking for when they're hearing you pitch. What are the key things that you should get across and indeed, what are we evaluating as we listen to you? Because in the end, the pitch is just a basis on which we want to get to know you and to understand the business opportunity and to think about what it is you're trying to do. And we'll leave plenty of time at the end for Q&A. Uh, and the only thing I want to warn you is that this is not a class on how to present. That's a whole s a topic unto itself. Now, with that in mind, this is a dry subject unless you have a story. And in fact, the good entrepreneurs that I see, if not the, the best entrepreneurs, always come in with a story. They come in to talk about how it is that they came to find this opportunity, what it is that they see is uh, uniquely their basis on which to prosecute the opportunity. And they tell it in the form of a story that you feel engaged in throughout. So I feel like I need to do the same because I can't just give you the, the template for the pitch. So my story is simple. I went on a journey uh, and it was to have foreign land, I'll tell you that much. This is not Massachusetts in the fall. Um, although it could be, it could be the Berkshires, I guess. Um, but um, I, I'm sure many of you will recognize very quickly from um, wh where these pictures are taken. But the thing that was fun about this journey for me was it had many uh, new learnings. And that's part of what I think is great about uh, my job is I get to learn a lot. And I also think that uh, it'll give me an opportunity to keep the subject matter rolling. So I use this as a parable, really, to say, Bring a story. Mine is going to be this journey that I took. Uh, whatever yours is, bring it to life. Make it yours. And try to make this, therefore, authentic when you give your pitch. Now, the first slide I'm going to suggest you put up is a really boring one, but an incredibly important one. It's what's your agenda? And I'm going to start by saying something incredibly obvious, which is, what are you trying to achieve with your pitch? Some people will come in with a pitch that is so long that it will basically cover soup to nuts how they're trying to build their business. That might be appropriate if you really are trying to get your entire business plan across and you want your, for example, audience to understand every aspect of your business. But if all you're trying to do is get a VC, for example, to take a meeting with you at your company, you probably don't need to do that. Or if all you're trying to do is get the first, if you like, commitment to learning more about your business, then again, you probably don't need to put all of that in there. For tonight's purposes, I've put pretty much an entire framework together because 
In a lot of instances, VCs don't have the time to read a full business plan and actually are expecting to get all the essence of your business from a presentation. It's just become the way of the world. And so this framework, covering everything from team, business overview, market opportunity, value prop, go-to-market, business model, and financials, is I would say a pretty good proxy for what most VCs will want to understand before they think seriously about engaging with you and investing in your business. That does not mean to say you should always put all of this in every pitch, in every situation. So think about what you're trying to get done, and what the next step is, and then use this. And in particular with VCs, I would say it makes sense to tease each step out. So for example, if you really do think one of the most important things that you've got is a lab that they should see, then give them just enough to get them excited about what you're developing to get them to the lab. Don't try to go you know, all the way into depth about everything that's going on in your lab and the entire formula that's behind it, uh, because you're obviously going to do a better job of that when you get them to the lab in person. So that's the point here, is, is pick the basis on which you deliver the pitch right up front. Now, with that agenda in mind, one of the first things I'd recommend is if you're going to give a pitch before you even start, introduce yourself. It's always all about people. In fact, what I suggest to you is that before you even get going on your pitch, you've you know, gone around the room. For those of you who are outside, I tried to do that earlier. Try to understand who your audience is, where they're coming from, and then understand, obviously, what they're trying to do is get to know you. And when we say that we invest in people, there are lots of forms in which we invest in people. I'll break down at least some of them that I suggest you cover. First of all, founders are a unique category. We're lucky enough to have Chuck here as a founder, if you just want to raise your ha hand, Chuck, a founder of a company called Aperion that we're lucky enough to back. Chuck came out of Apple and started his company when he saw a need for the next generation of management of devices in this bring-your-own-device world. Um, Chuck's a unique guy. I mean, to have seen that long before even that term existed and before really the iPhone had even taken off, and the, before the iPad even existed, and before corporations really understood that Apple was a company they'd deal with, he was thinking about that. And so we look for people like founders to give their insights as to how did they come up with that idea. And uh, what I'd like to do is just ask Chuck for just one second. Can you give us one brief example of how did you come up with the idea for Aperion? Um, I came up uh, with the idea from Aperion because Apple was getting out of the custom development business. So they, they, were, they, they could not build apps for uh, enterprises anymore. We were doing it at Apple. They wanted to get out of the business. The world wasn't ready. The Accenture as the IBMs weren't ready to, to build apps uh, or deploy apps. So that's what uh, that created a real niche. And so I started appearing to help Apple accelerate the adoption of iOS in the enterprise. Thanks, Chuck. And then what he did, which is an example of the kind of story I'd recommend you tell, is he then parlayed that into realizing, OK, if you generalize that, you're going to need to not just produce custom apps, but in fact, you're going to need to deliver thousands of more prototyped, sorry, more um, generalized apps, and you're going to need to manage them, and that led to the entire business. So if you're a founder, whatever your story is, whether it's something like Chuck's, tell it up front. Make sure people understand you know, where you're coming from. So introduce yourself. Um, if you have management, and a lot of companies don't, in the very early stages, there is no management team. There's, there's um, you know, just a group of founders trying to figure out how to build themselves. Then great, bring that into play. And if you've got a board already, that's terrific. If you've got advisors, that's also great too. Taking those sort of one step at a time, the founders, um, I've just given you this example, should always give a little bit of background on what led them to this opportunity, because that gives us the context to understand why is it that they've got a particular advantage in the particular problem they're trying to solve. Then uh, we always recommend if you've got a group of people together, even if it was just from your dorm room and you've worked together through some set of experiences, share it with us, because guess what? Uh, it's far less risk to back a bunch of people who have worked together on something for some period of time, knocked off the edges, and figured out what it is that's good and bad about each other, and how to complement each other's strengths and weaknesses. And that's a big part of what it takes to uh, build a company, is obviously to team around some problem and figure out what you can bring collectively rather than individually. So I would encourage you very early on to make sure that these things come out. And then obviously, if you do have management, to talk about what are the previous companies they've been involved in, what are some of the achievements they've had, for example, um, value that they've built, exits that they've done, et cetera. So that'll cover the team. And now uh, the biggest mistake I see companies make is they go straight into pitching about what their, problem, what their solution is, what their product is, or what their service is. And I would highly recommend an orientation. 
So uh, just to tell you my story on what this picture is from here, I walked into one of these towers, the watchtowers that are all the way along the Great Wall. Now you know where I am. Um, and I walked into this room and I was totally disoriented, as you can see, because the shadow is at literally you know, right angles to where the window is. And of course, it took me a while to figure out what I was looking at and then went around the corner and saw the window. And that's literally what I feel like a lot of times when uh, entrepreneurs start pitching us before they've even told us what the background is to their idea or what the market opportunity is, et cetera. So I recommend right away, just put up a single line statement. We do XX for YY by uniquely ZZ. In other words, it would be we do, and I'll use Appearing as an example here, mobile application management for large enterprises by connecting to the cloud and deploying devices, sorry, applications on devices. Might be as simple as that. Now, that's not going to compel anybody to suddenly you know, invest in you, but it's going to orient them. And um, when you get to here later on when I talk about positioning in the go-to-market class, you'll see that we'll make this framework more ex explicit about what you do uniquely well and how you do it and why it's positioning you for success. But at the start of the pitch, this is just an orientation. And I encourage you, we, we had a pitch competition uh, with the um, Harvard group last year, and we got this feedback even after people had heard this, which is they went straight into their pitch too often uh, without orienting people. Um, and those that did a good job of the orientation got a lot more buy-in early on. So the next thing I'd do is get your uh, audience understanding what problem is it that you solve. And there are lots of things that, that come to mind here in terms of the way you might do this. To use my story as an example, one of the things I'm sure everybody's aware of is that the Great Wall got built as at least a defense. What you might not be aware of is some of the many other problems that also uh, got used to address. So for example, um, it was used for border controls, for immigration uh, and emigration for that matter. It was also used to collect duties along the Silk Road, uh, and therefore either to discourage trade or to encourage trade. Now, you could say that problem in the case of the Great Wall could have been solved a lot more simply than building a five and a half thousand mile uh, wall uh, that was built over many, many centuries. For those of you who don't know, um, it was multiple hundreds of years. I believe it was seven centuries BC that the wall first started to get built in different pieces. Um, the point being here, whatever your story is, should be as compelling as to understand, in this case, you know, why did somebody build the Great Wall? Uh, and what was it that was behind that? And I would encourage you to very quickly get focused on what that problem is you solve. And if you want to get into a little bit more uh, on the positioning, maybe you'd say uniquely well for who. And that is uh, our orientation, again, around what's the market opportunity. The specific thing we're looking for to get behind the pitch here when you start to talk about the problem you're solving is two things. We're trying to understand what is the pain, what is the business pain, and what is the need. So uh, interestingly enough, if you think about most business problems, they have elements of pain to them. Like, for example, if you're trying to solve a problem as an enterprise of managing thousands and thousands of devices that people just walked into your company with and started accessing all your data with, it's probably security at one level. Uh, but there may be many others. What's the need? Well, the need may be different. The need may be that you actually want your company uh, employees to actually have their devices um, connecting to the information that feeds uh, things like your Salesforce with the right price lists or with the right documents to serve them in their day-to-day -day jobs. So. There are two different things there. One is a need to solve a business problem of giving people the right information to do their jobs. And the other is a pain, which is that if they don't have the right security around that device, then they may actually run into run foul of regulations or run into problems with um, you know, uh, things like the, the compliance uh, that you have in your particular business if you're, for example, in financial services. So very early on, when you think about your problem, get into the definition of of where is the pain and the need. When you talk about pain and need, I also recommend you talk about what is it that's changed? Why now? What, what is it that's happened that has caused this new situation uh, in the marketplace? So for example, the move from the PC world to what people are call, calling the post-PC era or the mobile device world would be an example of a change. What might have enabled it is wireless or you know, broadband access everywhere. In your case, whatever that may be, I encourage you to bring it out because 
what we're looking for is to understand, okay, this might be a great idea, but is it relevant right now? Now, with that in mind, the next thing to do is start to, to frame your value proposition. And again, we have a whole section on this. This is a, one of the key uh, workshops. But to give you a sense of what we mean by a value proposition, at the base of it is obviously, what's your solution? How do you address the pain and the need? What is your product or service? And here, it's not you know, pitching us immediately the 10 features. The things we're looking for is, what's unique about it? You know, how are you describing this in a way that makes it obvious this hasn't been done before? And what's defensible about it? Is there something that here can't be replicated easily because of the way you've built a process uh, or the way you've maybe patented uh, this approach. And then um, we talk a lot about this in the workshop, so I won't get too much into it now, but how do you get to a breakthrough? And how do you know it's a breakthrough? Um, a breakthrough can be measured, believe it or not. Um, usually, the word break being in breakthrough gives you a clue. You've probably broken some approach that's been there before, and you've come up with a completely new way of doing something. So with that in mind, um, if you've got something that is a, a really um, obvious breakthrough, it will be compelling. And again, we'll talk about what makes something compelling in the workshop solution. But what we're looking for when we're hearing this is to understand what you've done that would cause a customer to say, I'm going to throw the old approach out, and I'm going to take a risk on a startup, and I'm going to do this. And if you think about most of the great companies that have been started, I'm focused on software, so I can think of many examples there. They've almost invariably broken a traditional approach and, and created something that's compelling enough. So one of the ones that I often use is VMware. The reason I use VMware is not only they're a very successful company, but I think they're disrupting um, the whole stack, as we talk about it in the software world, from the bare metal of a machine all the way up to the applications that people run. And yet they did it with something that was completely different to um, you know, traditional approaches. They basically came up with a way of running many, many, many different workloads in virtual machines on a single machine to get much greater utilization out of it. That was a breakthrough. That was a breakthrough in thinking. It was just a fundamentally different way of thinking about things. The problem there was very obvious, which is that people had many, many uh, resources not being fully utilized. The solution was not obvious, which was instead of just you know, trying to run more programs side by side, it was actually to put them in containers effectively alongside each other and find a way to manage those containers. And so the genius there is obviously very compelling when you think about economics of suddenly going from what was typically under, in the teens of utilization on machines to suddenly into the you know, 80, 90% utilization. So if you can start to think about whether it's you know, your examples may be totally different to VMware, but your approach in a way that's um, talked about to us as an audience with those kind of compelling attributes, then we will be paying attention at this point. Now, one of the, the things I love to do here is to just test the audience. Um, sorry, not you as an audience, but if you're presenting, is to check in with your audience. Do they get it? Do they get what you just said is compelling? And there's an easy way to do this. What was the before and what's the after? So in this case, um, on the wall, it's kind of obvious when I show you this. I didn't realize this, but so much of the wall is, is uh, walked upon so often, and it's so old that it's constantly being rebuilt. It's kind of like the, the classic problem. You'll never have finished this. Um, so if you look here, the before and after was, you know, here are the old bricks, and here are the new bricks. Uh, by, by the way, new is, is uh, in many instances, hundreds of years old. Uh, but what's fun about this is that as you, I take you through the rest of the walk, you'll see that the wall has got literally dynasties worth of different materials all the way along it. So back to the story here, um, your before and after should be as simple as I just said to you with something like VMware. It should be that before, server utilization was in the teens, percentage-wise, you know, 15, 16, 17%. After, it was 85, 90%, or whatever you wanted to run it at. And the impact was you could run hundreds of applications, uh, well, hundreds might be an exaggeration, but dozens of applications uh, on the same um, set of resources where you might have been able to only run one. So it's very obvious what the before and after is there. And what all the benefits are of that, well, obviously you can save money, you can make it much more easy to manage, all the many other things we could go through. But you should have a simple before and after. And the more simple and before, sorry, the more simple it is, the more obvious it will be. One of the best ways to sort of uh, char characterize that, I think is often used, but I think it's a good way of talking about it. Um, how painful the subject is before um, should cause people to literally think about, oh my God, this is such an acute pain. You know, I've got such a serious problem here that 
I can't live with it any longer. And that you wouldn't take a vitamin for. You'd take something like an antibiotic for, um, you know, or penicillin. So I think the contrast of, of what we're looking for here is that you're, you're addressing a problem where there's such acute pain that something like a vitamin is not going to solve it. You're going to need penicillin or uh, something that's a really a, a significantly powerful solution uh, to address it. And the after is that you're an absolute joy that suddenly now, you know, you've gone from being incredibly sick to basically being incredibly well and able to tackle your, your, uh, your life. Now, obviously in the medicine, this is an easy one to use, but how do you think about this in a business context? I would say the following. If you could live with it before, then it's not acute. If you really couldn't live with it, things kept breaking, then it's acute. So we're looking for problems where people are running into challenges every day as a result of this. So in my companies, I think about um, many instances you know, there are examples where this, the starting point of the problem is maybe painful, but not really mission critical um, in the sense that it's broken and, and the business process can't carry on. But it's, it's addressing something that is going to get there. So here's the example that I think uh, we'll carry on with in our case study tonight. Um, maybe Carlos, you can talk to this or, or uh, Sim. If you're Cisco and you have tens of thousands of salespeople, and they suddenly come to you and say, okay, I, I've got my device, I've brought it in, but I need my um, price lists, product lists, because they have hundreds of products, and they can't get them except for, and this is literally what they were doing, plugging iPhones into uh, iTunes on everyone's desktop and then sending everybody by email the documents, et cetera. You have a problem because people aren't at their desks by their iTunes plugging in their iPhone or their iPad to get that information every day, they're out on the road. That's what salespeople do. So you have got a broken process. You've literally got no way to get the right information to your salespeople about the new products you're launching and to keep them with the right prices. So what happened? What, what did we do? Provide a mechanism that allows them to, um, uh, to get those, those, that content essentially over the air and uh, to, to be able to update all those devices, um, each user, uh, automatically. What happened is we, they went from uh, a very, very small number of people uh, getting, the, uh, getting the actual content into the device to a much higher number of, of uh, compliance. So thousands of people initially started with a small deployment and then as, as the word spread and as they were, as the people in sales actually started to see the value proposition for them. Uh, then they were they they, they got a lot more. Um, uh, they, 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 the solution actually got deployed uh, across the board. Um, a simple case of the value proposition for them is um, a lot of their quotes are very unique. Uh, series of routers, switches, very special discounts, etc. So getting that that uh, uh, quote approved actually is something that would take them a week to do or so. Now they have a solution that actually allows them to do it on the spot from their mobile device as they are on the road and get a quote approved much faster. So for the salespeople, this becomes an enormous value proposition. They can actually be much more agile, and of course, it's, uh, they see a lot of benefits in that. Thanks very much, Carlos. So you, you go from acute pain where you, you can't even get the information out to them. You're reliant on people literally having their laptops and using iTunes to update their stuff. IT pulling their hair out because they're, they're told they have to fix this problem. You know, the people who are launching the products, the product managers frustrated that they, the sales force isn't empowered. To suddenly now, the sales force is not only getting the right information, but they're actually being more effective selling right in front of the customer in the moment, giving them quotes real time, getting the information out and closing more business. It's a joy. It's literally what's happened. And so guess what? You go from, you know, a problem of a few uh, hundred devices getting activated a month to tens of thousands getting activated within a matter of weeks. So we're looking for uh, people to describe their value props in those kinds of before and after ways. And when you can describe them in that, those kinds of, um, uh, if you like, acute ways, then I would describe our interest as also going distinctly uh, you know, through the roof. But most people don't spend enough time doing that. They don't spend enough time getting this really, really clear. So I encourage you to do that. And the best way to do it is what I just did with you. Bring some proof. What have you done with your idea? What is uh, the example that you've got that you could articulate from a customer viewpoint? If you've got some stories of what the customer's done with your product, uh, of how they, for example, you know, uh, measured the, the um, return on investment they've got or the payback period, how long it took them to actually get a return on investment, then bring them to the fore right at this point. Because we go from at this point, 
not really sure whether this sounds real to having conviction around it based on you know, hearing, for example, a Cisco story. Uh, the Cisco story that I love best is um, actually what they decided to name that process. They, they called it the Cisco Fridge. Um, and they, they basically put this app catalog and all the materials up in the Cisco fridge online. And so it became self-service in the end for the, uh, the customers to, for their sales force to actually get access to all those applications. And then when you, when you do that, obviously you can articulate from your viewpoint how repeatable and how scalable it is. So um, to call on the, the last of our guests for tonight, uh, Sim, lots of people had alternative approaches to this, right? There were other players in the, in the marketplace, yeah. they call them MDM players. But they obviously were challenged to get this to scale because I know uh, from uh, experience, having done the research beforehand, they were not able to do this via the cloud and so they were basically having to do it device by device. So what was the difference between our solution in terms of our business? Could we, you know, how were we able to address this with greater scale and how repeatable was this for us? Did it mean that the entire company had to be focused on Cisco to get 10,000 devices out or how, how, did, how did it scale for us? because it was a cloud-based service. It could be done uh, basically with self-serve, so an individual could get you know, very easily on board. They didn't need an IT person to set them up. They didn't need to have a special certificate installed. They didn't have to go through multiple steps. And we sometimes uh, were you know, saying, well, salespeople are, are basically pretty simple people. They want it really easy. But everybody really wants an easy solution. So if you give it a one-step process and you make people feel good about it, um, that's part of the scalability, but there's also an aspect of it which is very social. They'll tell their friends. And this was actually a big part of it. The adoption was they would actually show it to their colleagues and they get excited about it. And ultimately, I, I know this is probably the next class, but net promoter score. The, the, the folks at Cisco that have this, there's 10,000 of them or more, were showing it to their customers and because of that, we got leads and sales from that. So that just shows you how viral it was. So I think that the aspect of scalability is the product design, but also uh, thinking about the, the way in which human beings interact with the technology. It's probably one of the most critical things. Thank you, Sam. I didn't tell you, which is uh, kudos to him and the team, is that when we first invested, it used to take, I think it was a six days or seven days for a customer to go from wanting to try the thing to going through the entire process oh, yeah. and getting authentication with Apple and everything else to get it to work. How long does it take now? A minute, and that's not an exaggeration. So, um, it became it became a uh, an an opportunity for us as, as well as a problem that we were growing so fast, and we had to reduce what was you know several days worth of process to get customers on board to taking it down to being able to do it within a minute. Uh, originally, the goal was live in five, uh, so it's great to hear it's down to a minute. I didn't even know that. Better pay more attention to my board meetings. Um, but the point is here, when you've actually described how the customer's getting benefit, you should also get back to your business. What we're looking to understand is that you're thinking about not just the customer viewpoint, but also how does your business become repeatable and scalable. So that's the point about this um, example that we just picked. And if you've done this well, you'll have credibility at this point. You can take a deep breath and say, okay, we know the problem you're solving, we know the market opportunity, we get an understanding of how you're doing it uniquely well, and we've got some proof that you're doing it. So we're paying attention. So then the question is, how big can this business be? And that brings us on to what I would describe as the vision and mission. Now, there is an incredibly important balance to get right at this point, which is a lot of entrepreneurs will come in with a huge vision and absolutely no idea where to start. What I would say to you is that you have to have both. This is not an either or. You need to be very clear about where you're going to start, but you also need to be very clear about where you're going to end up in terms of building a scale of business that makes, interest, makes it interesting to your, your VC. In our case, we're, we're looking for what we call game changers, which are businesses that can be at least $100 million in revenue. So if you don't have a vision for that, then it's not going to appeal to us. That's not to say, by the way, it, it won't appeal to other VCs. You may ha not have such great ambition, but the point I would make here is that your vision is a part of the story, and you need to understand from day one how to articulate it. So, what do I think is the most important thing? Talk about the market. Talk about what you think your market is and how it will evolve. So obviously if it's enterprise devices and you have a vision that you know, there's a phone in everybody's pocket and there's a, a an, you know, mobile device that they carry around for every part of their job, and your vision is that you're going to enable them to carry all the information they need uh, with the simplicity of a click, you know, 
accessible from the web, they'll look great. I'm actually doing a horrible job of probably articulating what Chuck may have had as his vision. But the point is, he had a vision. <laughs> um, and that vision was very clear when he started pitching to us. And he also had a mission, which I think was very obvious too, which was to be the leading company to enable that whole mobile workforce to become effective in the use of their technology. So with that as, as a viewpoint, we then start to think about, okay, how will you get from here to there? Um, if you talk to the founders of, for example, uh, one of my companies, Demandware, it was e-commerce on demand. And even though that is a very different company, you know, nine years later than when they started, that vision has not changed at all. Uh, it was that basically you wouldn't have to build all the infrastructure that you need for putting your uh, website, sorry, your e-commerce site up. We would provide it to you on demand via the cloud. We learned a lot along the way in nine years, but that vision never really changed. And if I were to look back at many of the successful companies, either we've backed or you see in the tech world, actually their vision and mission very rarely changes. Uh, it might evolve uh, in terms of products or you know, the various different solutions they provide as the market evolves, but this is very fundamentally one of the great strengths we see and we're looking for in entrepreneurs is do they have the vision for how this market's going to evolve and how to lead it? So what I would say is this. If you're not early with a vision, you're probably too late. In the immortal words of Gray, uh, Wayne Gretzky, you, know, you need to be skating to where the puck is going, not where it is. And so you need to be thinking about what is this market going to look like, typically in five to seven years' time, even though that feels like an eternity, because that's what it takes on average to build a business. It takes five to seven years. If you look back at the average period for an exit to occur in the venture world, it's actually more like seven or eight years at the moment. I would say you've got to have the kind of vision that gives you the runway to go after building this business in that kind of time period. And if you don't have that, that's okay, but it certainly should be a qualifier and a pause for thought for you. And trying to think, figure out you know, where might you bring into your team that kind of visionary who can have over the horizon view of what this market's gonna do is very key. What we're looking for is actually connecting the dots. We're looking for people who not only have that vision, but also have the understanding of what are the various different steps along the way uh, that will enable them to build this business. So what's the market going to evolve uh, to be each step? What will be the drivers? What will be the ways you'll meet those uh, various different changes in the marketplace? How will you devel develop your solutions and your products and so forth to do it? And by the way, that does not have to be in tremendous detail, but having that clarity of thought is, is important to us. So, with that in mind, I'll give you another example here because I think it'll bring it uh, to life for you too. Everybody's talking about big data right now. I don't think it's very hard to have a vision that we're going to have you know, not just terabytes, but petabytes, yottabytes of data. I mean, that's just obvious. Everything we, we uh, do is being measured. You know, right now, the fact that I'm walking around with a, a cell phone uh, on my belt, for example, it's being tracked somewhere. Um, whether I want it to be tracked or not is another story. But, um, <laughs> Data is being collected everywhere. We've, we've got obviously an explosion of data. So coming into us and saying there's a, a you have a vision for data exploding is not enough. But coming into us and saying, for example, as uh, one of our recent investments did, we think that there's a tremendous challenge associated with data that today is very structured, normally stored in rows and columns and in databases that are accessed, uh, for example, from transactional systems like you know, uh, banking records and so forth being merged with data that is unstructured. For example, all the description of what it is that you've bought and why you bought it and all of the context in which you bought it. Those two worlds actually are merging and the vision that this particular company had, the company's called Akeban, was to bring them together in a single data store and to think about how applications would regularly use more and more of the combination of structured and unstructured data and they would want to do that in a way that made it possible for them to do completely new things. Like, for example, the minute you buy something, look up all the attributes that caused you to buy it and compare them with other people and make recommendations right off the bat as to what might be other things you'd want to buy. It's a common problem. It turns out to be very difficult to solve if you have your data stored in two very disparate systems, structured and unstructured. Once you've done that, you've still got to answer the question for us about, okay, does that make a big market? And there's some level of, of angst I always have when we look at these slides because very rarely does anybody know what the market's going to be in five to seven years' time. So we certainly aren't expecting you to have accurate data down to the sort of 
nanometer. What we're looking for is a top-down view, and that may be as simple as going to a, you know, a Gartner or a Forrester and getting a report, but it'd be better if you can actually do your own math and say, okay, the potential audience is this size, and um, you know, therefore, this is the market opportunity for us. And that's the sort of top-down view that we're, we're looking for. But the more important one is actually the bottom-up view. The bottom-up view that we're looking for actually is to say, we're going to start by targeting this particular segment. So for argument's sake, if you were building a mobile app, and there were a lot of people who were last year in this class, what's the particular customer that's going to buy this? And if you could get very specific and say, we're going to sell this to doctors in hospitals for this particular critical care application, and there are, uh, in New England, this number of hospitals with those kinds of doctors that are doing the, this kind of application, and the average selling price will be $100 per doctor per year. Now we're starting to hear something that makes sense to us because you're being very clear about not just your target but also what your value is to them and how you build out a market sizing, therefore, that you know, at least in a mathematical sense makes sense. That makes a lot more uh, sense to us than Gartner says that the mobile applications market is worth $5 billion because I'm sure they do. I don't actually know what their latest number is, but um, it would probably be bigger than that. And it usually goes up every year by 10% just to keep us buying their research. So the reality is we are looking for you to give us more of the specifics here in market sizing around what really goes into uh, your first sort of as as assumptions about who you're selling to and how you'll sell to them and at what price, and then build that uh, basic bottoms up model. So uh, clarify the basis would be the key when you're doing the, the uh, bottoms up, and quote the sources would be the key if you're doing top down. Now, here comes the fun area, competition. Almost every entrepreneur makes the first mistake of saying, we don't have any competition. But trust me, I hear that more than you can possibly imagine. No, this is brand new. It's absolutely unique. Nobody's done this before. We don't have any competition. That would be great, but it probably means you're actually smoking something. Um, <laughs> and one of the reasons why it does is that there's finite dollars spent in any market area. So even if there is no solution, to what you're doing, and that's never been done before, and it genuinely is brand new and unique. The reality is people only have a certain amount of money in their budget for whatever it is that they're doing. So I hate to say it, but even though the government keeps printing money in the healthcare example, uh, the reality is there's still finite dollars in the healthcare system. So you know, if we followed on that previous example, even if you've got a completely breakthrough way of enabling critical care with this application, the reality is it's going to compete with something else in the hospital. And so your competition is whatever it is that would be competing for those dollars. And you better get used to it. So I would encourage you to right off the bat, you answer the question before we answer it for you about what your competition is. And then obviously start to get into things at that point like compared to the competition, our unique differentiation is, and here's the first startup secret for tonight, it's never just technology. So what might else uh, come into this that's, that's uh, not just the technology. Maybe your solution is better, but what if you've also got a distribution agreement with the carriers, the healthcare providers, to actually get this solution to market, and everybody else in the marketplace hasn't? Would that be an advantage? Of course it would. It'd be a major differentiation, especially if it was a an exclusive agreement that was over some number of periods. That's differentiation. And so think about not just the technology, but in case uh, you don't get to my class on business models. Think about, for example, what your business model could be that's differentiated. It turns out it's one of the most compelling things for us as VCs to see as differentiated business model, not just the technology. And then what might be the barriers to entry? Again, not just technology. So we just talked about distribution, but there are many examples of barriers to entry. Um, obviously, if you were Mark Zuckerberg and you started Facebook, you, you probably didn't realize this in advance. Maybe he was a genius and he did. But the biggest barrier to entry for Facebook competitors is obviously the network. I mean, if you go onto Facebook to share something, you know that there are hundreds of millions of other people there. If you start the next Facebook, even if it's 10 times better, and you go on to share it and you're user one, who are you sharing it with? So their barrier to entry is their network. You can create barriers to entry like that in almost any business if you start by thinking about it up front. So I encourage you to do that. And again, I encourage you not to just get caught in the technology cycle and think it's all technology. We are sitting, by the way, um, on the other side behind this. As I said, we'll get behind the pitch here. 
And we're asking the following question. Why is this impenetrable? You know, what is it that's going to stop somebody coming along and actually just you know, replicating this idea or you know, changing um, this particular approach and coming up with a different way to solve the same problem? And, and why will it be sustainable? Well, there are obvious ways um, that you can make things you know, impenetrable. You can put patents around them. That's tough for startups, though, I'll tell you, because it's tough for a startup to compete with a giant and have to go to court on IP. However, it certainly is important. The more important thing is to think about things like I just talked about, the network effect, or go a little bit further and say, what are you building as you actually are successful? And it might be something like data. For example, Google, in the end, started as a search engine, but has really got probably a, a massive advantage today that, that would be tough to compete against, and that is all the data it's collecting about everybody every time anybody does a search. That data is just a huge barrier to entry. And they've probably got a bunch of other things I could go through. Um, you know, for example, the scale of their compute farm to be able to crunch that data is another barrier to entry. But th there are many things you can do to create these barriers in your business. And I would encourage you to start from day one thinking about what it is you're building up that will be difficult for somebody to assail. So when you present it, you'll see that I actually recommend you use a picture to actually do that. Um, first of all, I'd say come up with something like a two by two. You know, if, if you haven't been to business school yet um, and seen this, you will soon get used to the fact that everybody wants you to end up in the top right-hand corner. Um, but before we get there, what I would do is map everybody else out and size, for example, on whatever axes you're putting. For example, if it's you know, speed and price, which would be typical things that people would put up here, that's fine. Um, it's a good starting point. The size might represent the size of the companies. And if um, you're, you're thinking about what axes to put up, I would start to get uh, clear with yourself that what you want here is to get axes up here that are not just incremental in nature. So <coughs> speed is an incremental example. Um, and price is also an incremental example. People can always lower their price or increase their price. But what we're looking for is some real barriers that will give you an opportunity uh, to go claim a white space that somebody else can't come after. So what are examples of real barriers? Well, if we think about these, some of these companies I've been talking about, one of the things that's happening in the, in the software world is there's a massive shift between everything being installed and stuff being available in the cloud. So that's a, that's a barrier. Because it turns out if you build applications for on-premise installation, they are totally differently architected than if you build them for the cloud, where they need to be what's called multi-tenant and using shared resources to get the economies of scale that cloud provides. And they use all that stuff I was talking about earlier that VMware produces. So that's a classic example of a divide, of a barrier. Our competitors are on-premise. We're in the cloud. And you've, sure, I'm sure you can think of many others in your particular example that would be providing both axes. What you want to end up with is a clear white space where it's obvious that nobody is building this cloud-based, for example, product to address instead of Let's use Appearance as an example here uh, again. Instead of the old tethered uh, laptops or desktops, now mobile devices. So again, that's a distinct uh, barrier. You've got tethered versus mobile. And being able to define, in this case, a white space that says we're the only people who can do cloud-based mobile deployment of applications to the enterprise sets up a white space, which is going to be hard for other people to come after if you put all those other barriers we're talking into place. But it also makes it very obvious to people that you've got a unique positioning. We talk about this a lot more, by the way, in the class on both um, value prop, go-to-market, and, in fact, uh, business models. So I'm not going to get into it tonight. But in terms of your pitch, you should have something, at least, that is your positioning that makes it obvious where your white space is and why you're defensible and, indeed, where your competitors lie and how you're out-positioning them. OK, on to business model. This section is really one thing. How do you make money? You may describe this any way you want. I'm going to give you the three key things that you should think about. How do you create your product? How do you deliver it? And how do you harness the value on it? So we're not going into this tonight, because this is literally a whole workshop. Um, but creating your product is things like how do you develop it? So for example, do you get leverage out of things like open source or crowdsourcing? When you deliver your product, is it just a sales uh, force delivery, or do you have, for example, a channel that can help you with delivery? Um, and then how do you harness the value, which is things like 
you know, obviously what's the basis on which you're pricing and packaging and delivering it. And just to give you a sneak preview of, of what the fun is that we have when we get to that workshop, there are so many exciting business models emerging. If I'd given this class 20 years ago, we'd probably talked about a few very basic business models. But literally, business models are as innovative today as technology. And you've got companies that have just developed completely different approaches to the marketplace um, to deliver their value. And a classic example that I like to talk about, I'm a big proponent of open source, is Red Hat. Red Hat basically sells a product that you can go and buy, sorry, you can go and get for free. Linux is available totally free. So how on earth is a billion dollar company, billion dollar in revenue, by the way, more like $8 billion in value, grown out of selling something free? Well, we'll talk about that when we do the business model class. And it's an important example of what I hope you will get from thinking about your business, which is new ways to build differentiation and to make it obvious how you, you make money. So if you've done that well, uh, one thing we will be looking for behind the scenes is does this uh, entrepreneur or team understand what to do to align their revenue streams with their customers and, for example, support partners? What do I mean by that? Well, if you have a fee-based system that says every time a customer does a transaction with you, they pay you a dollar. And if it goes up to 10,000 transactions a month, you know, maybe you take it down to 50 cents. That may be a great way for you to, to build your business, but wouldn't it be better if you said, hey, I can actually give this away. We'll give them all the infrastructure for all the transactions in the world. But by the way, every transaction they do, we're going to collect the data on that transaction. So in fact, the customer's not paying anything for the entire infrastructure. We're going to make money on selling the data about those transactions. That's Nielsen's business model. And what I would encourage you to do is not get stuck on a business model that just is so blatantly you know, uh, contradictory what your customer would want. In other words, to charge them more as they use a service more is usually not what people want. They usually want to pay as little as they can up front. What if you could give it to them free and find some alternate benefit that actually enabled you to make money off of them using this? So think about revenue streams that align with customers uh, and that also might support partners. For example, how would you get other people who are involved in your supply chain to engage with you on working in your business? Well, if they could make money from your uh, product or services you sell it, they would definitely do that. So again, I'll go back to uh, an example that we were talking about earlier, uh, one of my companies, Demandware. We'll feature a case study where we've actually got 120 partners in what they call the Link Program, who are all integrating with Demandware, and that's an e-commerce platform, to give them things like the customs clearing services or the tracking services or the packaging services or, more importantly, analytics services, advertising, um, personalization, et cetera, all things that people want around e-commerce. Be extremely painful for Demandware to go and build all those things, but by having those services integrated with their platform, all of those companies in that ecosystem can benefit every time Demandware gets a new customer. And Demandware benefits because every time um, they're selling, looking for a new customer, they have a more complete solution. So we're looking for you to, to define things when you're thinking about your business model uh, that will enable a business to get built around you where partners can actually help you be more effective in getting to market and build your revenue stream, offer more value, and so forth. Again, I'm going to cover a lot more of this in the later sessions, but if you can talk about it in your pitch, just give instances of it, it'll help us understand that you get the business. You've got your product, you've got your service, you've got your business model, you understand why it's unique, how do you actually get it out there, how do you get people buying it, um, and how do you sell it effectively? The key thing I would cover is just a basic marketing and sales plan. Um, I've given you a simple structure here, which is you know, to think about how do you get awareness at the top all the way down to purchase at the bottom. This is a key part of what we cover in the go-to-market section, uh, so I'm not going to go through it today. But if you can describe this in basic terms, some of the highlights that you might, might cover here would be things like the segment, the particular target you're going after, what the initial marketing and sales cycle is, in other words, how you'd get out, whether you'd use inbound or outbound tactics. And in your sales plan, you know, what would you basically have as a sales force? Would you have an inside sales force or a combination with outside? Uh, would you use direct or indirect? Would you use channels? Uh, and then would you use services to sell your product um, or not? Or would it be just purely a product sale? And in general, what we're looking for here is that you've thought this through in enough detail that you're thinking about how this will sync with your business model. So how does it, for example, play to the way you're pricing and packaging things? And again, these will get covered in the workshop. But if you cover this in your perfect pitch, 
uh, in your uh, investor pitch, you, you will be getting a lot of um, clarity to us, and we'll be thinking about netting it out in, in this simple way, which is to say, okay, have these guys really got clarity about what it will cost to acquire and retain their customers versus what they're actually going to achieve in revenues from those customers over the life cycle value of engaging with that customer. And um, when you divide those two, we're looking for a ratio which is sort of greater than 3x. In other words, that it costs you about a third as much as you're going to gain from a customer over the time that you're going to address their needs. And again, we'll talk about this in the business model and um, go to market sections as how do you do this. But if you've got this metric well understood and you can define what it takes to acquire a customer, the cost of acquiring them, and how long you think you're going to be able to serve those customers, what you'll get from them, you're going to be getting a lot of kudos from us because we then at that point know you have a viable business. You've got something that could actually be profitable. This business model will net out. And of course, being investors, we have to get to those numbers. And so we're at that point. Um, I have to share you with a funny story now because I've been walking the, the um, wall at this point for probably three or four hours. And um, I was told that I would get picked up by my guide at about, I think it was um, three or four miles down the, 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 the wall, which by the way, it doesn't sound like a long way, but when you're going up and down, it's a long way, especially when you're carrying all the photo gear that I was. Um, and so I discovered that the, the, the business model for the wall was actually pretty interesting. <laughs> they don't charge tourists to go there, obviously. It's a, it's a big deal that, you know, it's, it's a, a, a huge tourist attraction. But if you ever want to buy a water, you will find the most unbelievable margins being made by all these sellers. And in fact, the further you go along the wall, the price of the water goes up, <laughs> as I discovered. And the later than the day it goes, um, the higher the price too. So I got lost. I, I missed my driver on the first time. And I found the same seller coming back that I'd bought my bottle of water for, which the equivalent is, I think, probably only about $3 or so. But that was a lot uh, in, in Chinese terms. He was now selling it to me for $5. And so I, I couldn't help but say to him, wait a second, same water, you know, same guy, let's have this discussion because I don't speak Chinese, so I'm using my guide to have this discussion with him. And finally gets to a point where he says to me, well, it's really simple. You've got how many yards, I mean, how many miles to go back? And um, you know, I'm getting this translation, and I realize basically I have no choice. <laughs> and that's basically where you want to be. You want to be in a place where at this point, it's obvious that your customers have no choice. You've got the price advantage and the business model that they've got to take. So when you start to get to the numbers, most people say, go straight to the financials. I say the exact opposite. What we're looking for at really behind the scenes is you understand the, the milestones and metrics that will drive the financials. And what we're looking for is things like, what do you think the key hires are? When do you need to make them? Uh, when do you think you'll get your product into beta? When do you think you'll get it to ship? When will you have your first customers? How long will it take you to get those customers productive, et cetera? And then obviously that will lead to things like when do you get uh, to cash flow positive or break even. But that's, in many instances, you know, a long time out. So the money will fall out of this. In other words, you know, if, you, if you put the metrics together in the right way and you can actually put those milestones out there, then you can build out the financials. And of course, um, people always say this, well, what if I'm not a financial person? Very few founders or entrepreneurs are uh, both great at creating technology and are great finance people. It's our job to find resources for you to help you get these things in play. But at some point, you will have to put a P&L and cash flow together, even if it's with uh, you know, somebody who, for example, might be a, uh, an interim CFO or, or um, you know, a resource we found you, et cetera. And then what you're looking for is a basic breakdown, one year by quarter at a minimum. Uh, and then this is the fun part, up to a five-year projection. Now, we all know you're not going to get that projection right, but it is a help in providing a guidance on how big can this business be. It's sort of, if you like, the proof. It's the, the, it's the uh, challenge to say that this all fits together, and if you've done all the right things that we've just talked about, and you can project out against this huge market opportunity, you should have a big business. You should be able to show that that's the case over five years. So that's really the goal of that um, projection. It's not to be you know, dead accurate. It's, a, it's about directionally being correct. And then what I would say is you know, a series of metrics here. You can find these on the site rather than me going through them that are the typical things you want to cover. So they're things like obviously not just revenue at the top line, but gross margin expenses and, and footing it down to profit and loss and cash. But what are we looking for behind the scenes? Because this is easy. This is one of my favorite things that I try to help entrepreneurs with. We're looking for a term I coined called realistic optimists. 
what the hell is a realistic optimist? Well, there's a lot of smiling people in the room, so I think you must all be realistic optimists to have hung in here for nearly an hour now. Uh, so here's what a realistic optimist is. If you come in and say, our business is just going to go straight up and to the right, we think we're going to go from zero to 50 million in the first year, you're not realistic. You might be an optimist, but you're not a realistic optimist. Why do I say that? Because if you go and look at the number of businesses that have gone from zero to 50 million in anything less than five years, it's a very small number. Very small, ever, by the way. We're talking about a few companies like Compaq or Salesforce.com. I happen to have one in my portfolio that we'll talk about later on um, that just hit the Acquia, uh, called Acquia, that just hit the Inc. 500 in number eight position. And I've watched how hard it is for them to have gone from zero to 50 million from scratch in our office in that period of time. It's really hard. So you could be a pessimist and say, okay, well, it's going to take me a really long time. It's going to take me 10 years. Okay. Trouble is, that's a really long time for us to invest in. And so we probably don't want to hear that. Uh, most of our fund lives are only 10 years. And so it's probably going to cause us to go, well, they might be really accurate, but it's probably not really very exciting for us to invest in. So what we're looking for is the realistic optimists, the people who actually can be honest with themselves about how long it's going to take to get their business to a point where it really has momentum, and then obviously see it ultimately become big. And in fact, if you were to look at the success of most of our companies, it usually takes much longer than they originally think, and then when it hits, it's much bigger than they originally think. And so what really comes across to us when we're looking at the financials is not the numbers. It's the thought behind it and whether you are a realistic optimist, whether you've actually thought out what are all the things that it's going to take for you to build a business that has the momentum that can become big and over what time periods and obviously more than anything else, what are the milestones behind that? So if you're a realistic optimist, you've probably got my attention at this point. Um, and I have a fun uh, example of what was happening to me at this point on the wall. As I said, I'd got lost. And so I was having to go back to find my driver. Uh, and I noticed that everybody else was headed in the opposite direction, which is never an encouraging thing. Um, but there was at least one guy who'd obviously given up, who was headed back in the same direction as me. Um, <laughs> the problem with this is that I will tell you to just use the analogy in, in our world. If you've invested in your entire life in building a business over several years, the last thing you're going to do is give up. You're probably going to want to see it through uh, to get to that sort of ultimate goal of whatever your mission or vision was. And so the reason I encourage you to think about this for a second and think about you know, what's the impact is that if you can, from day one, just put that extra bit of time into thinking about what really takes to build your business, then the chances are that classic phrase, a stitch in time saves nine, will play out. And what's an example of that? Well, almost every business has many different paths it could take. For example, you could say day one, I'm always going to sell direct. You know, I really believe in this, um, and this is the only way it's going to work. Or you could say, no, I'm always going to sell indirect right from the get-go. The answer is probably in many instances, if you think through all of those different uh, combinations and permutations, you'll find out that your product doesn't suit one or the other, or your proposition with your customer actually needs to be delivered either directly or indirectly because of the way it needs to be serviced or supported. And there are so many different ways that you could actually cut out all the different uh, if you like, twists and turns that can cost you so much and actually you know, delay you so much. Uh, in my case, if I'd just taken a GPS, for example, it would have been very easy. Uh, God knows why I didn't. Didn't have the iPhone data plan in advance, didn't have all those things in advance. Imagine how much trouble it would have saved me. So the equivalent in the startup world to that GPS is, in my opinion, to find the kinds of people who have either, either done it before, uh, who can be part of your you know, core team, or your advisory team, or find mentors, which is what you know, the iLab's all about and so forth, or, or find obviously people who can give you the complement to your skill sets that will help you think out in advance what is the right way to go building this business. Because guess what? Although every business may be different, there are a lot of startup lessons um, that people have learned which are very generic. And they are around things like we're going to talk about you know, the business model and and um, go to market and so forth. Okay, last piece of this is going to be you asking for the order. And it's, you know, how much money do you want from us? And it's a simple thing. The cash raise should just basically spell out 
what your use of proceeds will be, what do you want the money for, and most VCs will have a rule of thumb about how long they'll want to fund you for. We typically say 18 months, and the reason is we don't want you to have so much money that you just you know, go out and blow it all right away, but we want you to have enough that you can make enough progress. And enough progress will be defined by those milestones, but we tend to find that 18 months gives you enough time to, for example, build a product, go out there and test it, get your first customers, validate your business model is, is at least in its nascent forms workable, and then obviously invest in whatever might be the next stage, which is making it repeatable or then scalable. So whatever your milestones are and whatever it is you need to raise money for, make sure that that's clear and ask for that amount, and don't ask for more, don't ask for less, because you need to find yourself in a position where the next time you're raising money, it's very obvious that you met those milestones with the capital that you raised, and therefore, it's not only appropriate to ask for more, hopefully the VCs will be saying, can I give you more? Because they're impressed that you've executed on that. That should then be the light at the end of the tunnel, or in this case, the sun coming up finally for me uh, during the day. Most of the day was very hazy for me. Um, and the rest of what I'm going to tell you is, is uh, pretty obvious. It's going to be, you know, how do you summarize and make sure you've left the right things behind? So the summary should be as obvious as this. If you've done everything right, why is this a great investment? And how do you personally, or the team that you're with, have an unfair competitive advantage going after it? And that should be around the things we talked about, like you've had unique experience in this domain area, you've had the personal understanding of this problem, you've seen where this market's going over some period of time, you've envisaged this opportunity, and you've developed the solution, and so forth. And honestly, if you've done that, Behind the scenes, we'll be sitting there dying to put money behind you. This should not be something you have to ask for. And if you don't get the order, ask yourself why not. Because don't forget, we're putting money in, you're investing your life in here. And if you keep getting told no, that doesn't mean to say it's not a good idea. It actually, in many instances, turns out that great, some of the greatest businesses like eBay, for example, were turned down many, many, many times. But there also may be a reason why people don't invest, like you really didn't complete the thinking around, for example, the whole product or solution you have or the uh, way you're going to take it to market or the business model to make money around it. So um, take advantage of that. If somebody says no to you, ask them why they said no. You know, what was the issue? Don't just let them get away with, well, you know, we've heard this before or you know, there's three other pitches that we've heard. That may be true, but it would be great if you could get real feedback. So part of the idea of, of these kinds of sessions is to make it much more obvious when we're doing these things. Uh, what some of those questions are, and I encourage you to raise them uh, with me either tonight or when you're actually coming up with your ideas. And the backup slides, this is all up on the web, so I'm going to run through them very quickly. It uh, depends on the kind of presentation you have, but there'll be things like, for example, um, the cap table, you know, who's, who are the existing investors, how much have you given to the founders and team. Um, if you have an exit potential, uh, what is that? What do you think will be beyond just an IPO? Is it a potential acquirer? You think that's the way you're going to go? Um, what would be some of the values that have been paid recently? And then, um, as needed for drill down, if you think there's lots of things like, for example, financial assumptions or screenshots of your products or customer testimonials, you can always put that in there. But again, remember what I said at the beginning. It's very unlikely you're going to put everything I just took you through all in one deck for one meeting. I just gave you the sort of complete view of this, and you can pick off what you might need for various different people. So you guys have been extremely patient to get to this. Um, and uh, your reward is I'm actually going to just show you now the, the uh, few minutes of video that I took, which puts all these photographs together for the walk. And this is sort of how, again, in the parable, I hope you would end up. You'd end up with a bang, which is basically to say, hey, put this all together. It all flows. So.
Great. Well, we've neatly wrapped up exactly on time here. So thank you all very much. I'd be happy to spend some time with you individually, too. I appreciate you taking the time this evening. Thank you.